This episode is sponsored by Shane Worrell, a proud supporter of the Degrassi Kid Patreon. Hello, Degrassi fans, and welcome to the Degrassi Kid Podcast, where each week we break down the history and impact of our favorite teen TV show. I'm Jocelyn, and this week I have a question for you. Have you ever wondered how Joey Jeremiah got his classic style of a Hawaiian t-shirt and a fedora? How Spike did her hair like that every single day? Or, or what it was like for the young actors when they got recognized in real life? Well, today we're going to find out. I reached out to Judy Shiner from the Degrassi Classic Series to talk about her time on the show. Judy worked so many behind-the-scenes positions that if you saw it on your TV screen, she's probably the one who put it there. Judy worked on the show's hair and makeup team, costume design, set decorating, the props department, and she was the acting coach for the young Degrassi cast in the 80s. When the kids were tackling those awkward subjects like teen sex, wet dreams, or sexual fantasies, Judy stepped in. She would teach them how to separate themselves from their characters, calling it the X Factor. While many of us grew up loving the show and wishing we could go to school with the real Degrassi kids, in reality, that's what caused a lot of problems. Because Degrassi cast age-appropriate kids from real life, the cast was more accessible than your average TV show. You might see Joey Jeremiah downtown on a streetcar, or Caitlin Ryan in your grade 8 English class. But in reality, that's Pat Mastriani and Stacey Mystician, two real-life people who have never experienced what their characters have gone through. So that's where Judy Shiner came in. Judy and the rest of the Degrassi team knew they had a responsibility to take care of their young actors outside of the show. They created acting workshops that helped navigate these real-life situations of being mistaken for their characters. For Joey Jeremiah, the fan reaction was great. <laughs> Pat went from this shy, awkward guy to this big stud who acted on TV. For Duncan Waugh, he was mocked for Arthur's more vulnerable scenes, like when he has a wet dream and calls Dr. Sally for advice. Duncan was bullied at school for simply playing a character on Degrassi, something that Judy helped him through with her acting classes. Pat Mastriani described Judy Shiner as Degrassi's cool older sister who did everything with a smile on her face. She would even drive them to set, make sure they had the right wardrobe for the day, and help run lines with the cast if they needed it. But my question is... How did she pull it off? How did Judy Shiner play such a huge part in the Degrassi franchise without anyone knowing she was there at all? Today, we're sitting down with Judy Shiner to talk all things Degrassi, but first, let's listen into this iconic scene where Judy Shiner makes an appearance as a customer in Degrassi's most popular yeah. episode. Some friends and I were talking, and someone said you couldn't get pregnant the first time you had sex. You want to bet? They say one in five girls gets pregnant the first time. It's amazing what some people believe. Like, you can't get pregnant if you stand up immediately afterwards? <laughs> Not true. <laughs> or you can't get pregnant if you keep your eyes closed. <laughs> I wish someone had told me the facts earlier. I was 17 when I had this one. Well, you're Christine's a good girl. You can be sure she's going to university. Yeah. Judy, welcome to the Degrassi Kid Podcast. I'm so excited to chat with you. Good morning from beautiful Toronto, Ontario on this Saturday morning. I cannot think of a better way to start my weekend than by talking with you, Jocelyn, super fan oh. and coordinator of so many other people's Degrassi dreams. Thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you for coming here, Judy. I was just telling you that I'm so excited for this because you handle so many behind the scenes uh, things on Degrassi Junior High, Degrassi High, and I'm so excited to pick your brain about all those little things that I've wondered about for years. So I'm so happy that you're here. Fantastic. Let's get started. Pick Let's my brain. What do you want to know? Well, first, I want to set the scene for everybody who's listening, because I know a lot of people wonder, like, 
how do you get connected to these people, Jocelyn? So we've met twice in my Degrassi fan history. We we're first met at Degrassi Palooza, which I'll show off. I'll show you. I have my little Judy Shiner autograph proudly displayed on my wall. And maybe even creepier, I have your uh, Degrassi Palooza headshot that sat behind you when you did your uh, your interviews. I have to say, full disclosure, I had a better hair and makeup team for those <laughs> photos than I do on this Saturday morning. But It looks beautiful. It looks great. But one of the things I loved about that event is Pat Mastriani threw it, Joey Jeremiah. It was uh, a fusion of cast, crew, creatives, and fans. I'm wondering what it was like for you, who's someone who's typically behind the scenes, to come out to an event like that and meet all of those fans. Do you have any standout memories? This is not hyperbolic when I say it was life-changing. It was life-changing. Because when we started Degrassi, Mm -hmm. and I hate to acknowledge this, no internet. So Our connection with the fan base was through live events, through letters. Uh, Sometimes people came when we were filming. We had little crowds when we were filming around. But the internet, of course, has exploded all of that into this intimate worldwide connection. And to be in that room face-to-face with so many fans who have been talking to each other, with the opportunity for them to really uh, discuss with us, share their stories, share their impact, the impact that Degrassi had on them with us. It was incredible. And I, as I know, you know, because you've been at these events, mm-hmm. to see everyone together who's so passionate about the same thing and who's so curious and who knows the whole Degrassi story so intimately, it was it was very, very powerful for me to be at that event. I could not stop talking about it when I got home. Oh, I love that. And I thought it was so special that Kit Hood got to come and be a part of that, especially Absolutely. so many years later. That was one of my favorite moments because uh, Pat had organized it so well. He had all of these moments where you could meet different groups of people. And I had, I knew, I was like, I know who I want to meet. I, I selected the group with Kit Hood, Yan Moore, Catherine Ellis, yourself, Michelle Goodeve, who's Miss Avery was there. Mr. Radish was there. Yeah. So I got like 15 uninterrupted minutes of just sitting with this talent and it was such a great time. And that's the memory that stands out for me that when I came back, I said, look at this group of people that I got to hang out with and meet. And I love that. And I have to say for us, it was so much fun because we hadn't seen, I hadn't seen a lot of the kids. We've been in touch. We've never stayed out of touch, but to just like be riding down an elevator and then see some cosplay kids dressed up as moments from the series. It, we just, we couldn't believe it. The detail, the commitment, the observation, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. I remember yeah. we had a Luella uh, janitor who was there. Yeah. I remember, I specifically remember the two people who dressed up as Melanie and Kathleen tied to the flagpole in grade Absolutely. nine. They got all those little intricate moments, which I loved. Yeah. The second time that we met was last year at Linda Schuyler's book launch, which is why I really wanted to talk to you now, because that book came out a year ago and I got to work on the publicity team for it. So I love talking about the book, but I really wanted to pick your brain now because we kind of got a glimpse into how your story is represented on Degrassi. But I want to kind of get the more behind the scenes and walk us through all those different things that you touched on the show. So the first question I have to kick us off is how did you get started on Degrassi? How did you get connected to the show? Well, I'm going to put this out to all of your listeners and viewers. I did not know that the kind of job that I do now or the kind of job I was hired to do on Degrassi existed. I didn't know. It was just one of those stories about networking and connections. So I studied theater at U of T and Sari Friedland was related to a friend I went to high school and they were together actually at a celebration of life for someone who had passed away and they're kind of talking And Sarah said to my friend, we're starting this new kids show. Do you know anyone who could lead workshops? And my friend said, Judy Shiner. 
because I'd been doing this for the Toronto Board of Education. So I initially came onto the show to train the kids. I never thought I'd do art direction or wardrobe or any of that stuff. And I met with Kit and Linda and they asked me to come up with a proposal for a six week training, extended audition period so that they could find their wonderful repertory group. I put together a proposal. We did that six weeks and they said, how can you fit on the show? And I said, well, I, you know, I'd like to direct the show from here. And Kit was like, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> I was a 25 year old kid. I'm like, but isn't this going to be my next step to start him? And he said, why don't you do wardrobe? And I thought wardrobe, what do I know about wardrobe? The answer was nothing, but I, I sort of learned on my way up. So wow. it's always really worth it to network with people. You never know where conversations are going to lead. And yeah. there is no way in the world I could have applied for this job. I simply didn't know it existed. So yes. talk to everyone. If you have a dream, talk, research, talk network. Yeah, you'll find it. You'll find it. That's uh-huh. what I learned because last year, um, this whole crazy thing happened where Degrassi is a show that helped me come out of the closet. And I met the actor who played that character who came out and we stayed in touch for years and years. And then this opportunity came up where Linda wanted to do a tour around the Degrassi locations and have someone tag along with her for these videos to promote it. And it just so happened this actress was like, I know this huge super fan Jocelyn. Why don't you get her to do it? And then that spiraled into I worked as with Linda on her social media team. Uh, and a secret that I'll tell you is I'm actually going back to Toronto in two weeks and Linda Skyler's hosting my 30th birthday party. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Just because that I is crazy. talked to the right people 10 years ago. It's a I'm very there. parallel story to the yeah. one I told. It's very, you're enthusiastic. You follow your dream, you follow your passion. And eventually, hopefully the stars align in certain scenarios and it's, it's great. And it just falls into place. Yeah. She has really told me about you, Jocelyn, over the years. She just said like, I'm going to have some context. And I, you know, I checked you out through Pat and he's like, oh my gosh, she's amazing. She's amazing. Oh. So the very good reputation in the community. That means everything to yeah. me. Judy, before we continue our chat about Degrassi, I want to say a huge thank you to some very special Degrassi fans. I'd like to welcome our newest member, Blaze, to the Degrassi Patreon. It means so much to me that you've signed up to support my podcast. And a thank you to Shane Worrell for being our sponsor today. Shane is a big Degrassi fan all the way from Australia. Shane noticed that in Degrassi Junior High, Wheels is wearing a sweater from an Australian football team, and he's determined to find out where it came from. But for now, let's get back to our conversation with Degrassi's Judy Shiner. I do want to tell you about one thing in terms of the background. Please do. By the time I got there, by the time they had their initial funding in place, there's something called a Bible. Do you know what that is? Yes, the show Bible, but please explain it for the listeners in case they don't. Okay, so they do a Bible for all shows, and and it is the document that you go back to again and again. When you're developing a series, you come up with the storylines, you come up with the characters, and then you do backstories of those characters. It's just in your head at this point, and you're trying to find references. What does this person look like? Who are their parents? What would they wear? What do they pack for lunch? What are things they love and don't like? So you do that for every character. You try and put friend groups together. This is all on paper, of course, so we haven't seen what it how it manifests in real life. Yeah. Um, you talk about, you know, what are themes you want to exhibit? What's the physical space of the school? What do people's homes look like? What are ideas we want to explore? And you put this all down in a massive comprehensive document. And then when you're trying to get funding, you have that Bible and you do different pitch documents to the various funding agencies. And you have this very dense uh, Bible, really, all, all there. And 
When you're having questions, once a show is up and running, any show, you go back to the Bible and it's there. And, and then you add it, things evolve and everything. But by the time I started on the series, that Bible was in place. So I could go and I could see what they thought was in Joey Jeremiah's locker. And I do the same thing today in commercials where they come to me with sort of their idea, a lookbook, a mood board. And I'm responsible for taking what someone has put on paper and then trying to figure out how do we actualize this in real life. And, and it's a very exciting process. But I do want to say before I join the, join the show, yeah. that Bible with Yan Moore did it, Kit, Linda, we may have had other creators, but those were the, the main three. Maybe Catherine was involved in that. So that was wow. that was our Bible. <gasps> I got to try to find that at the archives and go it's, through it. It's there cool. somewhere. It's a huge document. Very oh, exciting. I can't wait to go through it. Well, yeah. that transitions into my next question. I want to ask you about wardrobe specifically because you're responsible for building Joey's signature style, his Hawaiian t-shirts, his classic fedoras. I know Pat has shared that photo of you from the 80s holding uh, the shirts up in front of him. So when it comes to a character like Joey and you're building his style, what are those things that you're looking for? How do you make those decisions before we even see the show get made? So that would have been in the Bible. They were trying to think of what's a way someone could, a character could flip the bird to authority figures around him. And of course, when you wear a hat, that's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, sort of thumbs your nose to authority without being against the law. And fun fact, when I was in high school and Annie Hall was very big, I actually, I can't believe I'm admitting this, I actually wore a fedora for, to school and a tie and a vest because Annie Hall was very popular at that time. And I was called down to the principal's office, the vice principal's office. And he said, you can't wear that. And I said, is it in your rules? And he said, take it off. It's disrespectful. Anyway, so it's oh very God. funny that then I was responsible for uh, putting a fedora on Joey Jeremiah. But that particular thing, the Hawaiian church, the fedora, that would have been in the Bible before wow. I came to the show. And, um, you know, then things catch on, like you're trying to develop a signature style and it's it's real life, but it's slightly larger than life. So if people were just to see a still photograph of the gang, yeah. Lucy and her crazy headburns, sorry, and I, I'm so sorry, <laughs> Caitlin with her, you know, when that blonde streak oh, took yes. off, Spike with her hair, Joey with his fedora, the twins who didn't start off with a black and white wardrobe, but one day they wore something and we all thought, wow. This is their signature, wow. twins, black, white. This is going to be a fun thing. And that was that was an example of something that was really over the top, in a way more over the top than what Joey Jeremiah wore. Yeah. But it took off. They wore it by chance one day. And as soon as they walked onto set, everyone knew this is a fantastic signature style. So that's what you look for. It's wow. something that even without anyone open, opening their mouths, that exemplifies the personality of that character and in Joey's scenario you know he's a diminutive person mm -hmm. so his clothes were so much larger than life his attitude was so much larger than life and Hawaiian shirts represent that having that hat you just you see him from a mile off and in many of the first episodes of course he wore he carried that skateboard he did it once yes. and then he just kept doing it again and again and again that is incredible now this is the, this is always what I love about interviewing people from the show is because now when I watch it, I'm going to see it differently. So now I'm thinking about that that early moment where those moments where Mr. Radich takes that half hat off of Joey's head. And you're right, because it's an act of defiance in school. I would have never thought about that. That's so interesting. And I think that might have been Dan's personal touch. I would have to check the scripts to see if it was he was just looking for a way of, you know, just giving a little twist when he walked in the room. He, it may have been in the script. We'll have to check it. But Dan really yeah. made that a signature moment for himself. 
That is incredible. Yeah. Um, and I got to meet Dan, luckily, because of Pat Mastriani, who had he had this tour specifically where a bunch of Degrassi fans got on school buses. Um, Pat Mastriani was on one school bus. Uh, Dan Woods was on the other. And they drove us around to Degrassi Junior High, Degrassi High. We did all these tours together and they told the stories. And that's one of those uh, standout memories. Like I got to go to Degrassi Street with Dan Woods, which is so freaking cool. One of our first fan questions comes in from a girl named Amber, who's a huge Degrassi fan. And she's curious, do you have a favorite character to style? Was there one that you have a fond memory of styling? This is like being asked to choose your favorite child. <laughs> I figured. So I I really don't, because just when you think one's the favorite, mm -hmm. then, you know, Anais, look at the Lucy character. Look at that great theatrical, you know, that was so much fun. But then here comes Melanie. How quirky, what a wonderful way through her clothing of manifesting who the character of Melanie was. It was so unique. And then Caitlin, you have gorgeous Stacy there. Everything was so fun. And then of course, all the all the boys. And so, so the short answer is no, I don't have a favorite character because mm -hmm. every, in my family, I, I'm one of six and my father named us all by number. I'm the third born. So I was number one, number three. My sister was number one, number one number one, number two. So we were all number one, and then we were the unique kid. And yeah. it's the same with my Degrassi people. So you, you meet Pat, and he's like, you're my number one, Joey. And then you're my number one, Snake. And, and that's how it is. So there really, there isn't a favorite. They're all so fabulous. Spike, Spike style, as I'm sure you know, Spike started purely as a background character because yes. of her wacky hair, because of her look. So that was all Amanda's style, 100%. We didn't do a thing to begin with. And I, I didn't create that, but I was so um, enamored with the style, the energy that she brought, both from her amazing hair, but also her clothes. So I can't claim that that was my favorite because it was really, I was a fan of what she was bringing to us. So there wasn't a favorite. Do you have a favorite? Oh, I understand how you say that it's uh it's hard to choose. Even as a fan, it's hard for me to choose because I think fondly back of Joey's fedoras and Hawaiian shirts, but then I also loved that little touch with the twins. I, I agree that it's hard to pick a favorite. And every time I watch an episode, I think, oh, this is the one that I love the best. And then the next episode comes and you love the next one. So I get how it's difficult to choose. Look at Duncan with Arthur, you know, just like, yeah. so it didn't matter what we put on him. We put very plain clothes on him. Mm -hmm. But he was at that transitional physical part that all adolescents go on. Yes. You put those, you put what is a neatly ironed shirt on Duncan Waugh, the character, and suddenly he's all schlumpy, falling apart, messy. It looks like he just pulled it out of a big laundry pile. So yeah. that was charming in its own way. Yeah, I totally agree. I love that. We, we also had another fan question come in from Mike, who's a big fan of the Kids of Degrassi Street. Were you at all involved with the Kids of Degrassi Street? Any insight about Kids of Degrassi Street at all? I didn't work on it, but funnily enough, the person who did props and wardrobe, Risa Goldenberg, is someone I went to school with. I wasn't close friends with her, but I knew yeah. who she was. And I had to I had to stand back and give my respect to the people who at that point had way more experience working in television than I did, the original kids. Yeah. But Kate and Linda made it very clear for me they weren't just gonna give those roles to our Lee Laud or Stacey Mystician who bid on kids. They wanted to make sure that those kids could really transition with the audience and tell the adolescent stories, which are very different from the kids' stories. We started off with the agreement, blank slate, you have to prove yourself to be appropriate for the Degrassi repertory company. 
if for DGH, DGH. That is so interesting. And then before we talk about um, the acting workshops, I really want to get into those. I'm curious if you could paint a picture for us because now wardrobe departments, you have these big buildings with racks full of clothes. They're all brand new. Can you tell us what was the wardrobe department physically like back in the days of Degrassi Junior High? It's so embarrassing, but I'm going to be honest. So I was handed a system. I didn't question it. I just did the system. Mm -hmm. Do you know what a milk crate is? Yes. Okay. People used to store their record collections. So we had a giant construction of milk crates. So there were probably 40 milk crates stacked. Wow. I can't do my math here, but (laughs) 42, what's four? Like six high, seven across, taped together. And every kid had their name on a milk crate. I am not kidding. This is just so embarrassing. There were no racks. Nothing was hung up. At the beginning of the week, everyone brought their own clothes from home because for actor rules, you are allowed to ask actors to bring their own clothes. So they brought a certain amount of clothes. I coordinated them and I put them in the milk crates and we broke it down according to the screen days. So say an episode took place over four days of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. Monday would be called day one, Tuesday would be called day two. And when we wanted the kids to change, the AD would scream out, change into day three. And everyone would go on their handwritten list and say, are you in day three? Because during the course of a day, a shooting day, your first scene might be day four, close. Your next scene might be day one. Then we're back to day three. Then we're doing exterior back to day one. And that's how you shoot it. So you're changing throughout the day. You're not wearing the same clothes during the day. So physically, what it looked like was a big, huge fit together. It wasn't messy. It was neat, but it was in these milk crates. There were no racks. There were handwritten lists. People had to look at their lists. And then as the show went on, when we started to come up with these signature looks, we realized, of course, Pat Mastroianni didn't own a single Hawaiian shirt. So then I started to provide all those clothes. The twins, they owned one black and white thing. But once that look turned, you know, took off, I provided all the clothes. Anais had a couple of things of her own, you know, so they started with their own clothes and then I ended up buying the clothes. That's so interesting because I know a lot of fans, the show feels so real. It is so real. They're wearing their own clothes. So a lot of fans are curious. We're always curious about like how, how does it work to have a wardrobe department when they wear their own clothes, but you basically had this cubby system of day one, day two, day three. That is so smart. And so I think reflective of junior high school of how they really organize things in the school. So I think that's so interesting. And it's coordination. Like think of things, I can't think of the episodes off the top of my head, but where someone's clothes get damaged or where you're walking in the rain. So you can't have one shirt. You have to have 10 of those shirts. Right. When they wear their own clothes, maybe they're wearing their own jeans, but I'm providing 10 of the shirts. There's all sorts of special effecty things where you just have to have multiples of something. Or when we started doing the zit remedy, all those kinds of shirts, we created those. And then, you know, for gourmet scum, we printed a bunch of those. And then we thought, wouldn't it be fun to do what happens in real life, which is even if the gourmet scum doesn't make an appearance in that episode, of course, kids are going to wear those costumes. And we also thought to make a textured background, you have to think of what kids are doing in their real life. So that's why if you look in the background of the scene, you'll see cheerleaders walking through the scene that have nothing to do with the storyline. You'll see someone who we know after school, they're running to their ballet or their dance class. So even though they're not a character in the foreground, in the background, you'll see someone 
carrying roller skates, carrying their dance outfit, carrying gym stuff, because we wanted to give the texture of a real junior high. So we would think, what would people in the background be running off to that has nothing to do with the A-line uh, story? Isn't that interesting? That if is you look so closely, yeah. And you always think about that. Once you get all the foreground stuff done, you have to layer and texture the background. And if you look at sitcoms, what makes sitcoms feel fake? There's never that textured background. You always have the, t- the characters you're paying attention to. There's hardly anyone ever in the background. There aren't those layers. And, and that's why Degrassi feels so real. I love that. And I think another element to that, too, is when I'm thinking about the cheerleaders, I remember Colleen Lamb is one of the ones who wears the cheerleading outfit. But then on top of that, what's great about Degrassi is she also appears five years later just in the background of a class because she's still there. And those background characters, you guys are still using some of the same people who've worked on it. These are the things that I love about Degrassi is how it just makes it feel so real. And that's part of the repertory company. And that's what Kit and Linda really devised. They wanted this group. And it didn't matter if you had all the lines and all the huge scenes, or if you were the Colleen Lambs who were part of the fabric of the school, they didn't want people to just disappear. I mean, think of your own school experience. You have those same kids. You're you're there with for 10 years. You might never talk to them, but then you look at your school picture and there's Vivian. She's yeah. in the background the whole time. And then every once in a while, maybe she'll say something and it's like, oh, hi. Yeah, I remember so, you. Yeah. I love so that. That was Kit and Linda's whole concept with the repertory company. Wow. Well, actually, that's perfect because Linda, I'm going to read what Linda wrote in her book and the mother of all Degrassi on page 89. She writes about you and the acting workshops. And she says, from preliminary auditions, we selected a short list of about 50 kids, most with no acting experience. We decided to run a series of workshops that would offer some rudimentary acting classes, scene study and character work. We hired the multi-talented Judy Shiner, who prepared a curriculum for a three week intensive workshop. Judy was an infatigable talent and had a great rapport with the kids. She would stay with us through production and would head the art and wardrobe department on page 89. I'm actually curious at first, what was it like for you to read The Mother of All Degrassi and read about yourself in this memoir? I have so much admiration for Linda and for Kit. So it was fascinating for me to read her honest and forthright backstory. And I was very interested as a woman to read about some of the struggles she encountered because she was a trailblazer. So I loved reading all about her inspiration, about her journey, about her struggles, about her partnerships. I have so much admiration for Linda. I loved reading about it. And it is fun to be acknowledged because like all the crew members, we put our heart and soul for very little money into that series. There was very, very little money in the original two series, Degrassi Junior High and Degrassi High. So people just, they did it because it was a job, but we loved it. And I loved getting the acknowledgement in her book because it was a huge part of my life for six years. So really was. Hi, love that you appear a few times in the book I'll tell anyone who's listening my name appears on page 306 and that was like a mind-blowing thing for me so I know and I've only uh I mean I've been a fan of the show for a long time but I only I only started meeting you guys recently so that felt really really cool I'm wondering you know you you built this company the repertoire company with Linda and Kit do you have any standout memories from those early days of what it was like to put it all together first I want to tell you that one of the hard, the hardest moments in my life at that point were making the phone calls, which I had to do at the tender age of 25, telling people who did not get into the repertory company after doing maybe three weeks of work that they didn't get it. I will never forget the heartbreak of those moments. 
kids just fell apart on the other end of the photo. And it's like, there's nothing the matter with you. But when you're looking for, that, that's a lot of chemistry to get 50 people who fit together. So yes. for anyone who's pursuing an acting dream currently, I want to say many times people don't get cast, not because there's anything wrong, mm -hmm. but there's something that's not quite a fit. So even now, when I think of, I'm not over the bruising of the heartbreak of having to make those calls. And yeah. by the way, we did make a few mistakes on a couple of people. Like I think Neve Campbell auditioned for us and, <laughs> and we said, no, Neve, you're not right. <laughs> um, Whoopsie. <laughs> she, she turned out fine though. <laughs> if you think of baking a cake or baking cookies, you have all these ingredients that are wonderful in their own right, just mm -hmm. like the kids. And then you start combining them like you mix flour and sugar together and it becomes this wonderful paste and you add butter and it's just rich and it all comes together and then eventually you throw in the chocolate chips and you can't help but tasting the dough because it's so yummy that's what working with the repertory company is like you have all this independent diverse energy and you first look at the individual ingredients how does pat respond to certain scenarios show me what you got talent wise yeah then you start trying to find these combinations you know when we're, we're looking for love interests did Pat and Spike work? Did Pat and Annabelle Wall work? Did Pat and Wheels work? Did Pat and Stacy work? You start putting them together and then you see the sparks fly. And Jocelyn, when you see chemistry, there's no way of anticipating what chemistry is going to work. Mm -hmm. When you see chemistry come together, it is magic. So it comes together in a romantic sense, but it also comes together in a platonic sense. Vula and Nicole, like these, those were written, those characters. But it took us a long time to find our Vula in the original things. Who was going to be, what was that yin yang going to look like between Stephanie and Vula? And we really developed those characters independently. And then we put them together. It wasn't an instant fit. And then Nikki and Nicole, together in the workshops, really came together as the yin yang. And we knew this. This was chemistry, those two. This was, you could really see that in grade six, they've been besties, right? And yeah. there's something about that transitional year of grade seven, hormones, adolescence. All of a sudden, Lulu was on that same path. Stephanie was taking off. And the tension of that relationship, they both loved each other, but mm -hmm. the tension of that relationship falling apart in those early episodes, what kid can't relate to grade seven suddenly not being grade six yeah right and what a choice stephanie had to make to say i'm leaving arthur behind i'm leaving vula behind i'm putting myself i'm just going to take over the world that's why that whole first episode kiss me steph and those those first couple of episodes of the original dj why are they so powerful because people can get behind those universal emotions that stephanie and that joey went through I'm going to be me. I'm taking over the world. I'm trying on, you know, what can I pull off here? I'm trying on this personality in the world. Weren't those impactful episodes? Oh my God. I mean, that's what pulls you in is you feel like you're just, I mean, a lot of people even think it's a real documentary because it's yeah. so true to life and you write all that texture that comes in of those relationships. And because we made it for about $50. So <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And I love what you say about the chemistry, because I know that everyone who works on the show describes it as having worked on felt like summer camp. It didn't feel like they were working. And yeah. I think it's because you, you guys found all of those amazing personalities that fit together, which you're right. Whenever those start to fall apart hurts even more because you see 
the chemistry and the connection. I want to do one other chemistry question. Look at the zit remedy. Mm. Look at those three completely different personalities. Hilarious. You would never, they weren't the same guys. They were totally different. And what kept them together is, or what makes that relationship interesting between those three is the similarities. They had kind of different passions, but can you think of three more different personalities? Wheels, Snake, and Joey. Right. completely different guys. They wouldn't have the same response to any social scenario in the world. So that's kind of the brilliance of the writers and the producers, the brilliance of them, because there's a built-in tension. You know that in any given scenario, you're going to get one response from Snake, one response from Wales, one response from Joey. And then when you move that forward into Degrassi High and the famous mm-hmm. triangle in Schools Out, rather, in the movie, and then so these are the guys at the end of their adolescence when they are able to really say, I'm taking a different path than you. You know, yeah. I'm look at what Snake says to Joey, you're fucking Tessa Campbell. I mean, that could have happened in grade seven if he had the guts. You could tell he was waiting yeah. to tell Joey off in the very first episodes of DJH, but he wasn't mature enough. But by school's out, he's not taking it from Joey anymore. Oh, this is so interesting. I'm so excited to go back yeah. and watch the show and look for it. Like really notice these things because they're there, but they just feel so natural that you don't even think about them as an intentional piece of these things they're building up. And I want to actually, I have another, um, I think it's more of like a wardrobe set design kind of question is we talk about that transition from Degrassi Junior High to Degrassi High. The kids grow up, the storylines grow up. We're now talking about abortion. We're talking about HIV. Whenever you get the note as the art director of, okay, now the show has to grow up with them. What does that look like on screen? What decisions are you making to help the show grow up? So one of the wonderful things that Kit and Linda did and Yan Moore mm-hmm. is they listened very intentionally to the kids. And for a storyline for our audience, we had to keep the kids at a certain level during Degrassi Junior High. And then when we knew we were transitioning from high school, the kids themselves, both the actors and the, the real kids and the, the characters were dying to transform into a more mature high book. So like the kids were ready. I I, I want to stop doing this. I want to stop doing that. Please give me the chance to this or that. So it's a very organic process that they would um, transition out of their junior high years and into high. So we just, we did the research. We said, as we always did, you put together a mood board, you put, to, you listen to kids, you look at their rooms, you pull pictures and references from wherever possible. And you think, What's the difference? What would you do as a 13-year-old? What would you do as a 15-year-old? And then you you literally look at every little bit of their room. What's the color? Like, for instance, say a kid has a pink room that the parents won't let them remodel because it's their childhood pink. So you still have to deal with the pink, but maybe you're hanging posters up or scarves up or, you know, we had to acknowledge that the parents of these kids wouldn't let them just totally have a new room. Who does that? No parents gives their kids a budget. So we wanted to stay authentic and have little bits of childhood peek out. But then we wanted to bring in more things that were more relevant for um, teen years. And think of any kid who hides a cigarette or a joint or a condom or pornography or a love letter or whatever in your room. I mean, we, we always have these stuffed animals, these very childhood things. People are having sex in their bed, there's a condom, and then there's a little teddy bear. Yeah. So you always want those layers, which we all have in our real life. 
the childhood is wow. still there. They're not adults, they're just young adults. So we were just very conscious of the, you do your research, what is high school? Yeah. And then you try and imbue the look um, of that. And technically too, we thought about how can we make this a little more hard hitting in the camera work and everything, like the cinematography in high, it's different than junior high. It's less soft, it's it's harsher. The blocking is different. We We tried to bring the energy of high school, which is different than sort of the, more loving, soft atmosphere of junior high. Wow. We wanted to have, if you look at high, those background characters I was talking about, in the deep background, again, you really have to look carefully at the episodes to see them. We wanted people who might be frightening to other kids, you know, like the scary kids, the smoker's corner, the cool kids, the, the makeup y girls, the that athletes, like those pockets are built into the very deep background because you know when you're wandering high school and you turn a corner and there's like, ah, I hate walking by that room because da da da. Or this is where those kids eat lunch. I'm going to avoid that. Yeah. So going into high, we thought about that in a physical statement. What route would the kids take? Are there places they would avoid? Does the cafeteria feel safe? So You'd really have to be paying deep, deep attention to what we were doing, but we were conscious about doing it. Like high school is fun, but it's scary too, isn't it? Yeah, it is terrifying. Who's not Who's not afraid at their high school? Yeah, to the point that I don't know if I would even want to go back. I think I'd be too scared. Yeah. <laughs> That's so interesting. You're right, because I'm thinking about those moments where those characters exist in the background and then they get slightly brought to the forefront whenever we have like Melanie and Kathleen looking into the courtyard being like, oh, like they're grade nine. They're a little more mature than we are and how scared they are. So that's interesting. And same for the teacher's rooms. Like when you when you have a long hallway shot and you're walking by those teacher's rooms. So I wanted to say like, oh, this is the kind of teacher's room where you, you know, jump in and say hi on your lunch. And then there's that weirdo science teacher with a science lab. So when the kids are walking down the hall, you're never in that science room. but we did like full science experiments and weird bottles and chemistry and everything. And then we wanted the serious math room that was just not a friendly room. So you'd scoot by that. So all that texture is there in the wow. sets. Wow. I love how much intention there was to make the show realistic. And one one thing that really stood out to me in the book was how much intention there was about supporting the cast outside of the show and realizing that, you know, they're teenagers in real life, which makes the show great, but they also maybe don't have the personal toolkit to deal with being recognized. And there's some things that Linda mentioned. She talks about the X Factor and she shared some stories, for example, of how Duncan Waugh was bullied because of Arthur's wet dream storyline. Nicole Stoffman, who played Stephanie, would be shouted on the street all the way with Stephanie Kay. People were asking Amanda Steptoe about sex, even though she was a virgin. Meanwhile, there was actors like Pat Mastriani who loved the attention because it elevated his social status to be Joey on uh, Degrassi. I'm wondering if there was any moments for you where it really clicked for you that the Degrassi kids were kind of struggling to balance their identity of being these fictional characters on television and these people in real life. Do you have any memories about that? So I want to point out there was a bit of a time lag here between when the show took off and when we made the show. Mm -hmm. So when I was hired to do Degrassi, I was hired for six months. It was called a Sunday afternoon kids show. And I honestly thought I was being sentenced to jail. I'm like, six months on a Sunday afternoon CBC? It just seemed like this is this wasn't the edgy film career I was going after. And it's like yeah. a kid show. I was thinking clowns, puppets, Sunday afternoon, no one watches TV. 
So when we shot that entire first episode, we had no idea we were going to be such a hit. We had no idea we were going to be in a prime time time slot. So um, in terms of how it impacted the kids' life, we were in a relatively cut off environment because we were just making this show. Yeah. yeah. And when the show took off, we were, all of us were unprepared for how it would explode onto the Canadian television scene. So we had to have strategies. People, the kids had training um, on how to cope with fans, on how to cope with fan mail, on how to do media appearances. So it, it was a learning curve for us too. When we saw the numbers, when we saw the volume of fan mail, when we saw how invested people were in storylines, and this is true, not just for Degrassi, but for every show, people are not able to separate the characters from the real people. So yeah. we spoke very candidly to the kids uh, about that. So there were strategies implemented by Linda and Kid at Playing With Time to help kids cope with that, like the big picture. Mm -hmm. And in the small picture in their own lives at their own high school, there's just no going back. Once you're on TV, once you're famous, you can never regain your anonymity at your at your school. And for the kids who at art who were at arts schools with other kids who might have wanted to be performers, they could never honestly there's it's a loss of innocence. You know that there was always jealousy amongst if I can speak for them amongst their classmates like you're on TV. So that's just one of the costs of fame. Mm -hmm. I worked on another show, as I think you know, Ready or Not. I loved Ready or and, Not. Ready, uh, yeah, ready or Not. <laughs> so great. Done by the wonderful Elise Rosenberg. Laura Bertram, um, who plays Amanda, actually had her first kiss, her first kiss ever as a screen kiss. And I wow. remember thinking, like, oh, my gosh, that moment that should be in real life was done in a room full of 30 adults who were saying, like, can you move over here? Can, can we let you this? <laughs> sure I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure there were many of those moments for the Degrassi kids as well. Yeah. As they, as they coped with that. Wow. But, you know, it's it's no risk, no reward. So it's a great yeah. problem to have how you deal with your fame and popularity. But it's it's a real it was a, a very real issue for those kids. And I think they can speak to it more richly than I can. Yeah. But for sure, each of them would have had their own their own difficulties. Okay, I'm going to highlight one thing. Yes, please. Day BLT, he got a lot of flack for how white he appeared as a black kid on Degrassi. Oh my gosh. And that was something, that's something I've always felt bad about. I don't think we were as aware as we could have been about how to authentically replicate the experiences of a young black male in high school. So we sort of dressed him as a white college kid as a white, you know, he was just all clean and all buttoned down. And Dio came to Kit and Linda and they said, A, he's getting teased at school. Yeah. But because he wasn't dressing authentically, he wasn't representing, he wasn't allowed to have his hair in the way that he felt would have been appropriate for who he was. So he actually asked Kit and Linda to cut his hair in a different way. And I think there was some resistance. And there was some resistance because I think there we were not aware as we're all white we just actually didn't have the insight he fought for that and we realized boy we are ignorant here we didn't get that and i i've always been slightly embarrassed about that but i've i've actually felt that it was an example for me about how i had to acknowledge my ignorance mm -hmm. acknowledge my bias and learn from the kids in this example dial and 
if you look at those episodes in high, like when he was initially dating, who was he dating? Oh, uh, Michelle? Uh, Dion Michelle. Okay, yep. <laughs> think of a real name. Yes. <laughs> and they both look like they're from the exact same socioeconomic background, the exact same part of town. And then if you look at those episodes, he dresses more and more uh, authentically to who he wanted his screen character to be. Yeah. And he pushed for that. And I learned, and I, I, that was a very important moment for, for wow. me personally on the show in terms of paying attention to people's authentic backgrounds. But the point was you were asking how, how kids coped with some of the ribbing that they got in real life. Yeah. He explained to us that he definitely got teased at his school for, you know, taking it. Isn't that interesting? Wow, that is such a powerful story. And also something I wouldn't have recognized as a white kid watching the show. But I know that through uh, some of the things that Degrassi fans often talk about is Degrassi is so good at making so many different kinds of people visible on television. But sometimes there is that, are they represented or are they just there? So it's interesting to hear behind the scenes of that learning process of, you know, we've pioneered putting every kind of kid who looks differently or maybe needs mobility aids or these different things, but maybe the crew themselves wasn't prepared to reflect their real lives and how you actually learn and grow from that. So I, I think that's such a powerful and interesting story. And really the thing that the, the important thing is learning from that. We all grow up with with ignorance. How are we supposed to know these things unless we learn about them? And the powerful thing is making changes and listening to those once we hear those. So I think it's so interesting to hear how those dialogues and conversations were happening between a child and an adult in the 80s and how good yeah. you guys were at listening and adapting to that. Can That's I give so you one other powerful example? Please do. We were, of course, one of the first shows to really deal honestly and authentically with HIV AIDS. Mm. Um, it was a very, very scary time. If you think of how when COVID happened in 2020, we didn't know was this virus going to take over the world. Yeah. When HIV and AIDS happened in that initial wave. So first of all, I lost many friends early on. I was very aware and active within the HIV and AIDS community. I definitely knew it was going on. Yeah. And um, for Bad Blood, the episode Bad Blood, um, Kit and Linda made the decision. They they didn't want to hire actors. They wanted to hire authentic HIV AIDS activists and educators to come and participate in that show when they played the AIDS educators. But there were crew members who didn't want to be on that set. There were a couple crew members. They were because they said, what happens if one of these people who has been honest that they have HIV what happens if a ladder falls and they get a cut and we have to be exposed to their blood? Why should we be on a set when it's not safe? And we wow. had a very, but think about it. It's true. We didn't, we didn't really know. Should everyone be carrying? We didn't know how to protect ourselves. And we That's had so this, I know we had this very important crew meeting where we said, this is the whole point of this story of this storyline in Bad Blood is you actually don't know who in the room whether they're gay or whether they're straight or whether they're sexual, you don't know who has HIV. So you should assume everyone might be carrying HIV and you should assume when anyone gets a cut that you could be exposed to HIV. But that made us realize that we really don't have the protection even on a day-to-day -day set of having surgical gloves. We don't have a protocol for accidents do happen. People yeah. do hurt themselves. How do we deal with it? So it was like, um, life imitating art in that way where we realized we had to actually listen to that storyline of bad blood where you would never expect the Darren Brown character 
uh, to, you just wouldn't think he would be a person you could expose yeah. yourself to agent. And it was the same for us as crew members. And we had to shift our thinking. And it was this very interesting moment. Oh. And of course, you could see this bias that a few particular crew members, they were not permanent crew members, but yeah. there was this anti-gay, you know, that that was really the subtext of what they were yeah. saying. It's like, I'm going to know who has HIV. Mm-hmm. You're like, read mm-hmm. the script. The whole point is you have no idea. Exactly. We're all in this boat together. Isn't that sort of an interesting background, background that story? That is so interesting. I would have never and a thought couple of people, that. a couple people did not show up the day those activists wow. came to film the scene. They just said, I'm not I'm not going to be there. Isn't crazy and ignorant? That (laughs) is crazy because Linda does talk a little bit about that episode. She says that real people from people with AIDS came to talk to them. But the story that she focuses on is how they actually did the workshops with the parents and then they did the workshops with the kids and then they did the workshop on the show and how it stayed the same. Like the message that they were delivering to the crew was um, the message that they were going to end up showing on television. But I didn't know about all of the ignorance around it. And I think that makes sense because one thing I wished as a Degrassi fan is I could go back in time and watch these episodes as they aired, because I know now I'm educated on HIV AIDS. I grew up with, you know, all of the education that came out of that period, but I have no idea what it's like to be a teenager in 1989 watching that episode. And I know when I connect with adults, that's the episode, Spike's pregnancy, the Zit Remedy and Dwayne's HIV episodes are the three things that really stand out to them because of how mm-hmm. true to life it was of confronting those those biases. And I'll, I'll always remember how you how this conversation started with having those kids stand up in class and shake each other's hands. And then everyone who shook hands with Snake now has HIV age and how accessible that is to kids to really learn how that can happen. And in real life with HIV, I have to say, I remember where I was when I found out about HIV. It was, we read about it in National Enquirer at U of T. We're having lunch and it said like weird gay disease, killing gays, something like that. And I was laughing with my friend. It's like, what the heck is a gay disease? What are (laughs) they talking about? Of course, the person I actually read that article with was the first person I know who died of AIDS Wow! and we just we couldn't we just thought it was sensational we couldn't wrap our heads around it we couldn't believe it and we have no idea of the devastation that we would experience in our own lifetime so yeah you do understand how it's hard to same as COVID like yeah everything Canada could be locked down it's a bizarre concept and it was the same with AIDS you just and how powerful that Degrassi made that accessible to teenagers to yes. really understand themselves, especially the the group of people who's most uneducated about safe sex and all the, yeah. the dangers of it, who also had this kind of, but that can't happen to me mindset. Right. How beautiful of Degrassi to make that accessible. When we did the teen pregnancy circle with Spike, we yeah. also, as I think, you know, used real, we went into, we used, it wasn't a, a, a group that was a standalone group, but we did get real pregnant teens. And that was another big, huge learning moment because we could just take that pregnancy pillow out of Spike's wardrobe and return to normal. Yeah. But everyone in that scene was really a pregnant teen who was really going to give birth at 15 or 17. And I had an eye-opening moment in that session because we always presented Spike's story as I think for most stories as like, this is a, a difficult, a challenge for, this isn't, this isn't something she planned. So I was very shocked to sit in the real life sessions with some of these teen, um, these pregnant teens. They didn't say this wasn't planned. They said, this was like, if it happened, it happened. I'm glad I want a baby at 15 or 16 or 17. So I hadn't heard that. 
And again, it was one of those moments where I had to just really with an unbiased opinion, listen and say, why would someone choose to have a baby at 16? Well, clearly they were in an environment where there wasn't enough love. This was their do-over family of choice to have a child who would love them unconditionally. That was a very powerful learning moment for me. Wow. So isn't isn't that different from Spike's story? That is, yeah. Cause you would, I mean, it's so I'm so glad you guys did that research because yeah, you would go in with so much preconceived notion of like, well, a kid would if they just knew they would never do this. But wow, that's so interesting to hear real we life stories. And Egbert, the story of Egbert. So we made so many of those little great eggs. Those were, we had foam stand-in eggs. I still have one somewhere. We had real eggs and then we had many fake um, plasticky foam stand-in eggs. We, I drew that little Egbert face. That episode stayed with me. Of course, I didn't have children at that point. I have had children, love my children. <laughs> um, but the whole idea of carrying around an egg for a weekend and never being able to leave it unattended so I was in my late 20s at that point, And I thought I wouldn't be able to do that. I couldn't do that. I had no, that exercise really opened up my own eyes to what it must be like to be a parent and never wow. be off the hook. That isn't is that a great, incredible. isn't that a great exercise that taking care of Egbert? I love that. I love that so much. I, I love how much of it, like it personally connected with you. And I also love that you brought up the it's late episode, because one of my favorite fun facts is that you appear in that episode for, for anyone who uh, wants to look out for you. Can you describe what senior and what you're doing? I am uh, Spike's mom is doing my hair and she's talking to me about her daughter and, and that's how we, I can't remember. Does she, does she tell me that she's pregnant at that point or we, we're just gossiping. We're just too gossiping. gossiping. Well, I, this is one of my favorite uh, examples to always use from Degrassi because everyone remembers the episode where Spike got pregnant is you guys are talking. Spike says, mom, is it true? You can't get pregnant on your first time. Right. And you and her mom start laughing about all the myths that teens believe That's about right. pregnancy. And I love to, I use that as an example because Degrassi is so good at having sex ed lessons without making, without letting you know that you're getting them. Right. So in that conversation you're like I've heard that if you stand up right after you get, can't get pregnant I heard if you do this you can't get pregnant and you guys are kind of just casually talking about it while Spike listens in and it doesn't feel like that health lesson of you know someone standing in front of the class saying don't have sex this will happen it's just a natural part of you know that texture of the scene so mm. it's one of my favorite things that I always tell people that's Judy Shiner she's the art director from Degrassi so that was shot in a little hair salon that was very close to 935 Queen Street, the head of Playing With Time at Queen and Carla. It was just a little bit uh, west of there. Um, wow. And it's such an authentic, I mean, I don't even think they have salons like that anymore, but they did <laughs> back in the day. But e we knew it was even a very old fashioned salon. We didn't, I mean, obviously there were many modern salons as well, yeah. but they wanted the very working class feel and sort of a, a throwback to an older salon. So isn't that a great physical space too? That is a great physical space. I love how much you guys used Toronto like real places in Toronto with that texture I love the word texture I love that mm -hmm. and uh, I'm actually going to Toronto for my whole birthday party is actually planned around happy 30th <laughs> um I was like I want to have the craziest birthday ever 12 Degrassi fans are flying into Toronto and I'm taking them to different locations we're going to 935 Queen Street we're going to Pape Avenue we're going to Degrassi Junior High so I'm excited that now I get all these extra little stories to tell them I'm curious though how did it come about that you were going to be the one in the chair were you nervous at all about being on camera so nervous, so nervous, <laughs> even though I'd studied acting at U of T, even though I had lots of experience, it was just nerve wracking. It's a, uh, and that scene, there's a lot of mirrors in that scene, like mirrors in the salon. 
Right. So right. eyeline, where you're looking, not looking at the camera, looking at the right place. And I'm so used to being behind the camera and in control. You're very vulnerable when you're in front of the camera. It's it's a skill set. So yeah. yes, I was very nervous uh, that morning. How did I end up there? Kit said, Judy, you're going to play. Like he said, oh, it's a nothing scene. You're going to play it. Learn your lines. So we were, If I'm sure I know many fans have looked deeply to find out how many crew members are in the background of many scenes. So I did have speaking lines, but peppered throughout the entire series, crew members, mm -hmm. left, right, and center are thrown in the back there. They're everywhere. I know like mm -hmm. Kit plays a doctor. I know his parents appear on the show, specifically um, whenever, I think it's when Joey buys condoms, they're behind him kind of judging him and stuff like that. They're, they're everywhere. That's right. they're, it's one of the best parts of the show is you find all these different facts. That was a lot of fun. And I'm glad, I am glad I appear even in my tiny little cameo. It's so yeah. fun to be a part of that episode because it's such a popular episode. Yeah. And, uh, it, it's the yeah, reason it's we have a whole fun. new generation 20 years later, right? Absolutely. So, it sure is. That. Is there anywhere else that you appear in the show many many places uh, oh my gosh can I pull them all out there's a very funny still picture I'll send it to you of uh of me of Luella Hawkins aka the wonderful Susan Nielsen Susan. and of the set tutor Laura Papson and we appear in a record store when Stephanie is meeting Damon uh for the book signing when she's hanging out in that big coat so we're in that scene I'm I'm in the background of, I, I would have to actually go and, and figure out yep. the names of these episodes, but I know I'm pushing a pram in the background of one of the Spike storyline scenes, pushing a baby. This is something interesting. Kit, of course, is from England and he was a little bit older than me. So I'm 10 years older than the kids. Kit mm -hmm. and Linda were about 10 years older than I am. So everyone brings their generational references to a story and you have to be very conscious of what is accurate for the here and now and what is kind of 10 years older. So mm. Kit's idea, A, he was older than me and 20 years older than the kids, and B, he's British. So he brought references like he called a pram a pram instead of a baby stroller. So mm -hmm. there's a still that one of the fans who's taken apart the Grassy fashions, do you know that Instagram? Yes, yes. So it's of me pushing this old fashioned pram. Honestly, the pram is from 1958 or something. Like no one would actually have that pram yeah. in a 1980s show. But for Kit, it's like, that's his memory of what a baby stroller looks like. That's why when he yeah. said pram, that's what he was envisioning. It's kind of bizarre. Like who had a pram like that in the 80s? Yeah. Zero people. That we is had so to find funny. That that's, I know. And I remember thinking and saying to him like, no, everyone would be pushing like a plastic Graco stroller. Why are we? pushing this iconic 1950s pram on the street. It's because that, that, so that was funny. Kit's memory of his childhood. Isn't that interesting? That is so cute. That's his reference point of what that experience would be like. Oh, that is but so I, I am the person. Now, I look a little pregnant in that shot, not because I am pregnant, but because I'm wearing what I wore every day, which is a tool belt that had my scissors and my X-Acto knife and a powder kit for the kids and safety pins and those kinds of things. And when Kit oh, cool. said, get in the back of that scene, I just put my big shirt on top of it. So I kind of look pregnant, which helped, but it's all tools underneath there. There's no baby. Oh, that is so cool. I love learning all these cool facts. So I can yeah. tell everybody about them. Um, I also understand another prominent scene that you were in was Wheel's parents' funeral. Were you in the background of that scene? Yes. Oh my God. How did that feel to be a part of that kind of episode? That was such a powerful episode. And shout out to Neil Hope, 
lost way too young, gone way too young. Uh, yeah, you can't help but stand at a scene like that. We know it's fiction, mm -hmm. but you also know that Neil and several other kids on the show had very problematic relationships with their parents. And so it hit a very poignant personal note to just be present at that scene. We shot it in a real uh, graveyard and real cemetery. We had them, I remember them, we had to pay them to dig up a fake plot. I had to get fake um, coffins. I, there are many fake tombstones. They're made of styrofoams because we had to move tombstones to where we want them. So I have wow. very funny pictures of me actually picking up a styrofoam tombstone and moving it so that it properly uh, framed the shot. Isn't that interesting? Wow. So those are not, even though it's a real cemetery, that's not a real, we dug that plot yeah. and we still brought in those tombstones. Isn't that interesting? That is so interesting. <laughs> Just to have them perfectly placed. I really like that. And I know there's a documentary, I think it's called uh, Between Two Takes, where there's a conversation between Yan Moore and Neil Hope about preparing for that episode because Neil wanted to take on the responsibility of telling it because he went through that, which I think is so beautiful about how much the kids wanted to uh, tell their stories on the show and be someone that they can relate to. I think that's And so Neil and Linda, as I know she wrote about, had a very special relationship. Yes. Um, and Linda and Kit had that relationship with a number of kids. I'm not going to name names because mm -hmm. it's up to the kids to tell their own stories. But yeah. in addition to being producers and directors and writers of that show and founders of the repertory company, they did actually play uh, an immensely important personal role in the lives of many of these kids who maybe came from less than ideal backgrounds and they knew there was a safe space and safe and open hearts and listening ears within the walls of 935 Queen Street so they they so really beautiful. yeah they gave these kids a lot for, for the kids not all the kids but for the kids who were in need who didn't necessarily have supportive adults in their lives that's what I'm saying Mm -hmm. That is so beautiful. Okay, we're going to transition a little bit because you you have done wardrobe, you're working with hair and makeup, you're uh, helping the kids learn about the X Factor. You also work in the art department and continuity. I don't know how you did <laughs> all of these jobs at once, but you did just mention um, Damon King. You specifically referenced the episode where Stephanie Kay goes to a fictional book signing with a fictional celebrity. There's this book called The King of Hearts Confession, and there's a fan of Degrassi named Sierra who loves the books of Degrassi. Like They're always looking back around to see what kind of books the kids are reading. Uh, they love reading the ones that Degrassi made. And their question specifically was, when you see in the script that we have Damon King coming to a book signing with this fake book, how much of that on the screen are you responsible for? And how do you prepare for all that? I'm responsible for all of it. So first of all, I just want to talk about all the different roles. Yeah. As we grew, they did hire a few more people. So eventually Jocelyn Sr. Jocelyn Sr. did the um, wardrobe for all of Degrassi High. I was out of wardrobe by the time junior high ended. Oh, we never had a proper makeup person because they wanted it to look authentic. So again, I'm so sorry to all the kids at the repertory company that we didn't have a proper makeup person, but we didn't really do very much makeup. So I, I did the wardrobe initially, and then there were crew changes, and that's how I transitioned into the art department. And I did it initially with Susan Nielsen, Luella Hawkins, who then Hawkins. became a writer. And later I had other people help me in the art department. So by the time High was there, even though the kids remember me as wardrobe, I didn't do any wardrobe in High. Okay, good to know. It was a little more, a little more authentic and professional by the time we got to highlight. We really did have wardrobe racks, like the kind you we were talking about. Yeah. And oh, we really did so have cool. do you know that for wardrobe they take polaroids of what everyone wears on their day? So you remember. So yeah, because you, know, you might shoot the end of a scene on 
five days later that you did the beginning of. So you need Polaroids to, to match all of that. Wow. Okay. So your question is about Damon King and King of Hearts. So again, as you can see, so little money in those episodes and we were trying to, we had no printing print. like now I work of course with real graphics departments Arlene Lott is a real graphics designer that's what she does professionally in movies but back in the day it was just me and a Xerox machine trying to do those Damon King covers so we got the headshot of the actor who played Damon King and I did that design probably with letters and hand did it and then oh I printed out all of those book covers. You would never do that today because there would be some budget. There really wasn't. Yeah. And I put, we, we shot that in a real bookstore, but we had to have permission for whatever titles are in the deep background because you always need permission. And then I created that whole display and I literally made it on my living room floor, every single book. Do we need a hundred? Do we need three? And I take every book cover together. So I designed them. I take all the book covers on. We We used books from our Degrassi school library. And we went and we chose like a hundred books or 200 books that were the same shape and size. And we just literally taped all those book covers on and made that thing. Wow. That's and of course we didn't know about the internet. So we thought it would like fly by in the episode and no one would see it again. <laughs> no. And then you have people screenshotting and looking in. That's so incredible. And that's for like, I mean, what, that's like three minutes out of the entire episode and all of that work goes into it. That's right. That's incredible. Another Degrassi superfan, Degrassi CSI, we know from mm -hmm. Instagram, they wanted to specifically know, you know, Degrassi Junior High specifically, there's, it's such, looks so much like a school with all of the the posters, they're handmade. We have these handmade Stephanie K buttons, the kids are doing projects and diagrams. How do you get all of those maids? Like, were you, were you having any of the real kids make those kind of things? How do you make all those posters around the school? So I was not doing art department for Kiss Me Kate. So those initial Stephanie K buttons, I think they were done by the person who was there, Jake Fry and Ian Gray. They did those things. I uh, sort of three episodes in, I took over because we all got offered jobs on two features that were shooting at that time in Toronto. Patricia Rosemas, I've heard the mermaid singing and Adam Egoyan's first feature. We were all offered jobs on these feature films. So it was like stay on a Sunday afternoon kids show mm -hmm. or do these cutting edge feature films. So most of the art department went to the feature films and then it was just me and me and Susan. So that's why we took over. Wow. Yeah. So, so if you look at those posters, like Taco Tuesdays, and all, that, that's just all me can cartooning and I did so many of the blackboards just look at that handwriting I can do many different kinds of handwriting so I generated tons of those posters we had poster making days where Susan Nielsen and me and the kids would get together and at the end of every school year we had contacts within the Toronto Board of Education and we'd make appointments and we'd go around to schools and we'd say for art collections that haven't been picked up that kids made can we have some of those art pieces oh. So every year we went and we got a treasure trove of real, not so much the posters, anything that's a printed poster, we had permission to to use on the show. Yeah. Anything that's a handmade poster, we made. And all the other artwork, if we didn't make it ourselves, they are collected real artworks that we had, you know, because you walk by and you see like a bulletin board presentation. Yeah. So we made those bulletin boards, but we used real authentic artwork, but not necessarily from the Degrassi kids. They were made by other kids, many different schools. Wow. I would feel so cool if I was like that. I made that. That's mine for my school. Mm -hmm. That is so cool. And even today, I do so many. I work exclusively in commercials today. And lots of times you're in a kitchen and you need kids art on the fridge. 
you'll see my you can see my signature style from those posters there ready or not um, in commercials today yeah I love that is there any props that I know you talked about Egbert is there any props that you kept with you that that mean a lot to you Yes, there are. Um, so when Gith and Arthur did the sea creatures, that little packet, I have Aww. one of those. That, I love that packet. And I remember just, um, I remember as a kid, do you know what sea creatures are? Do you yes. Know what and I remember, I'm still, even at my advanced age, mesmerized by the concept that you could open up this powder and like, what are sea creatures? I love yeah. that. And I, I remember as a kid looking at those great seahorses and thinking, is it possible that this powder is going to turn into those seahorses? So I had so much fun designing that little envelope. Um, swamp sex robots. Uh, I love the Damon King stuff. There were so many fun, fun props to do. One of the episodes, the one with the science fair, that episode came back just after we had a summer hiatus. And we would always do jokes to each other on the crew about what the sets would be like. We'd always say, yeah, well, next week we're going to do like, a science fair <laughs> because we knew we weren't really <laughs> going to do a science fair because it would take weeks of work yeah but in fact we came back from our summer holiday one year and kit and linda said in this episode there's going to be a science fair and it shot in about four days and i thought <laughs> they're just kidding and then yeah. i read the script and there's a <gasps> science fair and i said kit and linda how can i do you know the i mean you've done science fair right? yeah the amount of, there's no way i i can't how can i pull this together i how can I do it? So that was one of my most challenging episodes because for any kid who's done science fair, it represents weeks of works and those trifle projects and yes. authentic stuff. We went into overdrive. We called every school we could think of to have any leftover science fair. And then we went and we researched a bunch of science fair to make that exploding volcano, to have that bulimio thing. So we created some of them are better. Some of them are authentic. Many of them we just made up. And I pulled many all-nighters to get that science fair together because I had to do it about three days. Isn't that, that, isn't isn't that crazy? Because you're right. Because I was thinking science fair projects, but anytime they talk about the science fair in any other scenes, it's one kid holding a diorama being like, this is my science fair project. But I never even considered when you're actually at the fair itself, you have all of those projects that you're responsible for. And you have to walk through and they all have to look like the kid has spent six weeks for the biggest mark of their science class. Wow. That, that I that's I never even considered all of the work that goes into that. And you also want stuff that's dynamic, like, you know, the science things that foam over or I remember we got dry ice and dry ice only lasts so many hours. And again, I can't emphasize enough for Degrassi Junior High, the budget was so, so low. So to spend like fifty dollars in dry ice to make that volcano. Wow. You know, steam was like huge. The dry ice is running out, the dry ice is running out, get the shot. <laughs> That is incredible. I love that. Yeah. And I know in terms of budget, I know so many of the Degrassi kids talked about like um, they would physically like move sandbags around and they would physically help out because they always like an all hands on deck kind of show. It so was. that's so interesting to hear all the ways that that's reflected. Okay. Actually, I have a memory from Degrassi Palooza. Um, specifically, they were introducing everybody and they kind of had a quick Q&A where some fans could ask questions. And I remember you specifically talked about what it takes to build the perfect frame on television and then half an inch outside of that frame is lights and cameras and a crew of people trying to make it run smoothly. And I know throughout this interview, we've learned that you, you've been responsible for art departments, you've done hair, makeup, wardrobe. I know what you do when it comes to building up to the show being shot. Was there anything you were responsible for once that camera is rolling, this is now your job? 
When we first started uh, the show, we didn't have what's called video assist. So now I would never be on a set without video assist. It's when you see in real time what's in the frame. So what would happen is you would, uh, the, the DP, Phil Earnshaw, would run through a shot and then I'd ride on the dolly or whatever, looking through his camera lens to see what was in the frame. And then during the second season, I think we got our first video assist where we were actually able to see in real time. Oh my so, God. Yes, you're responsible for everything that appears in that frame. Is there something that doesn't belong there? Is there a weird shadow? It's not the same as continuity. There's always a, there's always a continuity person. Yeah. But every head of department, whether it's lighting or sound or wardrobe or costume or art, is responsible for their own continuity. And you work in conjunction with the continuity person. So was there anything I was responsible for? Yes. In every shot, it's your responsibility because the director is paying attention to the performance to, to say, to ensure, was what I promised would appear? Did it actually appear? So it's there. Like if you're shooting King of Hearts, the whole book you know, the whole book display is there, but did it actually appear in the, in the tape or would it help if I moved things over just an inch or if she walked a little bit closer to here or there? So when you're looking at a set, wow. you can see everything with your eyes, but it doesn't necessarily end up in that frame. So that's what I was responsible for ensuring. And of course, there's all sorts of continuity things like, again, say someone has a rip in a, a costume or, or a, a splatter of something, you might be shooting part of that scene on the Monday and the rest of that scene on the Thursday. So I'm responsible for saying that's consistent. Let's say you're shooting someone walking on a second floor hallway in Degrassi High, and then there's a scene where they continue in the cafeteria. Right. You'd be shooting those scenes on two different days, potentially. Right. So you're responsible for making sure that it's consistent, that the continuity is the same. So even though there's a continuity person who's comparing their Polaroids saying, is this the same, is it the same? I'm also responsible for that. And then- wow thematically you're trying to always do things that support the storyline so mm. is what's in the background uh supportive to the storyline that's in the foreground did it appear can I move it over so it's actually in there there's one particularly obvious thing it's uh wheels is walking along queen street and the word home is in a storefront I can't remember which episode it is it's in one of the later Degrassi high seasons mm. but we wanted that notion of home to appear in a display in a background window so and it also is a source of light so I know that he walks by this storefront it gave us the justification for this blue light that comes in which is this word home so it's a very subtle subtextual element but it mirrors oh. the eternal journey of wheels can't wait to go back and watch it again with all this me new too I can't remember which one it is but yeah oh that is so cool um we have one more fan question that came in from Nicholas because as we know Degrassi High ends with schools out and then it comes back several years later with Degrassi the next generation was it ever a possibility that you might come back for that were you interested in it was it an offer anything like that for for schools out or for after schools out for, I did do sorry for out. Degrassi the next generation yes so I was asked to do it obviously mm -hmm. And I, and I had a great meeting with Linda and I just, I felt it was time for me personally to move on that I just wanted to do other things. Yeah. Um, so Linda took me out for lunch and she said, okay, can I pick your brain for the next Judy who's going to come? Uh, so I just, it was a very hard decision to leave Degrassi, but I just mm -hmm. thought, if not now, when? Yeah. So, wow. uh, yeah, so I left. So I left it's very stressful to do something on such a low budget. And 
to not know what you don't know. So I wasn't aware that in the real world, many people would be doing my job. It's, it's laughable. And it's not just my job. Every other, including what Kit and Linda did, what Sari did, mm-hmm. everyone wore many hats, which is a good thing at the beginning, but it takes its toll. So on the next generation of Degrassi, it's structured properly as mm-hmm. TV shows are structured. And you can see the result is fantastic, but there's not one person. There's a, an art department of however many, many, many people. Yes. There's a full wardrobe department. So we just... We did what we knew because we were young and stupid and didn't know any better, Mm -hmm. but it's not actually the right way to do things. The way they did it in the later episodes, that's the correct way to do it. The way I work now in commercials, that's the correct way. We were just young and stupid. So at the end of the six years, I was also exhausted and just felt I could move on. I will forever be grateful for the opportunity that Kit and Linda gave me and having me on this journey because I, I never would have been able to rise to the level that I did without Degrassi because even though I didn't know what I was doing I did learn along the way and I did learn what I didn't know Mm -hmm. and so that was the upside of working on this tiny little show that exploded into prime time because once people found out I was on that show they assumed I had the knowledge base and capabilities to go along with it I didn't and then eventually I did, but I, did. I certainly did. None of us did. None of us did at the beginning. Wow. I know so that's, that's why I decided not to continue with yep. Degrassi, but it was, uh, I was just ready to move on yep. and I moved on to ready or not, which was fantastic. And then to okay. any of your fans who are hoping for a career in television or film, it is all encompassing and it doesn't blend well with having a family. So Linda talks about that in her book. Yeah. One of the reasons I moved on to commercials is because I did want the love affair of my life. I had Mm -hmm. lots of other love affairs before, but I wanted (laughs) a fantastic marriage, which I do have. Mm -hmm. I wanted children. I could never see combining that with working in TV because when I was doing those milk crates with the kids' clothing, I could easily put in a 16 or 18 hour day and go home, try and get my sleep and drive the kids. So Anyone who's starting out their career or doing their first feature, they know that's the time of time requirement that's required. Yeah. Long term wasn't sustainable. And and Linda really addresses that in her book, doesn't she? She does. That. She really does reflect that. I think it's incredible mm-hmm. that you still do similar work through commercials. Like I know, mm-hmm. um, like last week we couldn't do our interview because you were busy working on another commercial, which that's I think right. is so cool that you're still in that realm of what you started with and how it was just kind of like, Hey, I have a friend who might be able to do this. And now you have this whole career, but I think that's incredible. For me, it's all about the same thing, which is problem solving. That's the hook for me. I love, it's like the clock is ticking. You get a whole bunch of elements and ingredients that you have to deal with. And then you have to solve the problem in a very specific period of time. And that, that just ignites my brain. I love all the challenges of problem solving, whether it's for a series or whether it's yeah. for a 30 second commercial. I love so that. That's I mean, why I still, I love doing what I do. It's a great play, play yeah. box. And you never know what your next day is going to be like, which must be I so exciting. Know. You don't know what's yeah. coming next. That's amazing. I have a few wrap up questions for you. Okay. Um, one of them is, you know, if you were ever tasked with writing your own Degrassi memoir, what's one story that you know you would have to tell in that memoir? I'm sort of going to answer that in a broader sense, it's about um, it's about dreams, really. The, the big story is that dreams can come true. Kit and Linda had a dream to create something, and they did. 
I had a dream to work in a creative industry with supportive people. That was my dream. I, I wanted always to have my brain on fire, to be living in an arts world, working a creative life, working with great people. That dream came true. For the repertory company, those kids believed in becoming actors, whether it was just on the one series or becoming big, big and famous. So when people ask, can dreams come true? Mm -hmm. I look at my experience on Degrassi. Dreams can come true. I spent six years working on this incredible show with incredible people, telling impactful and life-changing stories. And because they live on through people like you, through the internet, through fan bases, 30 years, 30 plus years later, that's a dream come true. So that's sort of my big, my big takeaway from my involvement with the Degrassi experiences. You don't know necessarily the road that will get you there, yep. but dreams can come true. Dreams can come true. And yeah. I know um, some advice that Linda Scatter gave me was tell people what your dreams are, because they, yeah. if you let people know what you want to do, you're more likely to make it happen. So and the, the second component of that, I just want to emphasize is the importance of storytelling. So I grew up, um, you know, with a, I was exposed to lots of literature. I had incredible, incredible parents, an amazing mother who had books throughout our home. I worked my way from one end of the shelf to the other end of the shelf in our school library. I was a voracious reader. I was told stories growing up. My mother actually read stories to me and all of my five siblings every single night in the summer, every single night. So I grew up with the power of storytelling. Kit, wow. Linda, Yan, Catherine, Susan, Wilson, they're brilliant storytellers. And a good story lasts forever. And you want to keep repeating it, whether you see it, whether it's talking about the storyline or watching the episode. Stories are the way we connect with each other. They're powerful. And I always want to work in an industry that supports the power of storytelling. Oh, I love that so much. I think that's so beautiful. Um, you kind of, I think, maybe hit this in the last question, but what does it mean to you that you worked on a show that is still making an impact on teenagers today? So powerful. I just can't tell you. It's so powerful. And I've mentioned that the internet wasn't around when we made the show, but who knows what's going to be around 30 years from now that we can't envision with AI or, you know, who knows? It's, it's, it's unbelievable. It shows us that there's no, there's no new story. We just told yeah. it in our new way, but people connect with these stories because they are universal. I did a show, uh, again, this is pre-internet, where it was about teens making choices. Uh, they go to a party and then you were able to, it was almost like a video game. You were able to say, this kid drinks and drives. This kid does drugs and drives. This kid drugs, does drugs and drink and doesn't drive. And it was looking at all of these sort of moral and ethical choices teenagers are faced with. And that was just in one little, uh, it was almost like this video game, as I say. Wow. But Degrassi took um, you know years to tell all of those stories, all of those options. So I'm so proud to be part of this body of work that takes teens through every possible incarnation of what they think, what they're afraid to think about, what they've tried, what they wouldn't dare try. It's, it's very satisfying that within the body of all the Degrassi franchise, all those options are examined. Yeah. And I love that it's done through a multi-generational, different ethnicities, that different ethnicities are included in this, that different abilities are represented truthfully. Yeah. I'm, I'm so proud to have been a part of 
of this franchise. And it's thanks to Pat for keeping the fan base going. Thanks to you for keeping the fan base going. Because don't you think it's incredible that people worldwide are connected through this series? I think it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful, like with Pat keeping the um, actors like at such an arm's reach to us. And the fact that I know with COVID um, and the fact that all these things were now streaming, so many more people found the show because they were trapped in their houses and they were finding this new TV show. So it's incredible how many more fans Degrassi is still creating, even though it, it at this point hasn't made an episode in six or seven years. Mm-hmm. And the episodes from 1987 are still making such a profound impact. I absolutely love it. I want to mention two other things. One, when I show my own kids these episodes and they look at, we, we shot so many things in a phone booth, like where people get into a phone booth. Yes. And my kids are like, what are those rocket ships? What, like, they don't know what a phone booth is. They don't know what a payphone is or a phone box. And we carry that phone box, which weighed about 10 trillion pounds. Yeah. Because it's very easy to shoot something where there's only one actor. And, and it's it's inexpensive. You could put it at the end of the day. You just get out that phone booth. Well, with that, I can remember because I know um, there's a scene where like Arthur and Yick call a radio show that they're listening to on a boombox to get advice. Sue about Johansson's talking yes. sex with Sue, who just died recently. Yes, and they did a documentary yes. about her. It was so so beautiful. Um, but yeah, it's interesting how many like all of that technology that would never happen now. You would Google it, right? That's right. You or you'd have think of phone how many shows just deal with a close-up screen of texting or phones. It's a yeah. whole different, yeah. Yeah, and they need to get out of the house, world. find a pay phone, call, call for the radio. Um, there is one fan who submitted a question. His name is Shane, and he actually helped me do some research for this episode. He's from Australia. And I'm sure you've probably been asked about this jumper. But in uh, Degrassi Junior High, specifically, It's Late, which is the episode you appear in. That's right. Wheels, who's played by Neil Hope, uh, is wearing a... Footscray Bulldogs jersey, which is based in Melbourne, Australia. And his question is this. Do you recall the jumper? And more to the point, do you know whether the actor Neil Hope chose it from his own wardrobe? Did someone give it to him on the show? Do you have any history about this jumper and how this Australian football team got this little shout out in Degrassi Junior High? I do know exactly how it got there. He's going to be so so excited. I know. So first of all, have you heard the concept Easter egg? Do you know yes. what an Easter egg is, right? So it's a yes. little wink, wink, a shout out to the fan base. We've always had a huge fan base in Australia. So this was a little like wink, wink, shout out. I don't think we knew exactly that it was this great, but it was, we knew that it was like a niche Australian team. Um, wow. We, I think I was just tasked with finding a sporty kind of shirt to put on the wheels character. And I'm like, here's a sporty kind of shirt. We had no idea it would take on the life that it has. This comes up at least once a year at our, oh in Australia. I know in the Australian media. And we do some interview about how the shirt ended up there. So I don't think we knew exactly what the small organization was, but we did know that it was a, a wink wink. And it was kind of a random shirt that I found. I think I thrifted it, to be honest. Oh my gosh. I thrifted. Sorry, kids. Uh, I did thrift a lot of that clothing, but <laughs> with our little budget, we thrifted a lot. Here's a sporty thing. It ended up on wheels. We found out the Australian connection and then it became this fantastic um, acknowledgement for our Australian fan base. Thank you, Shane. (laughs) So a lot of those, a lot of those clothes were thrifted and we're so glad to have the Australian fans. And it was, um, it's so much fun when we get asked that question from, it's been on a number of radio and TV shows, that one shirt. Who knew it would live on? Is that incredible? That's so funny that a a wardrobe you thrifted so many years ago still continues on to have this life. (laughs) 
I wanted to talk a little bit about the connection that we currently have between cast and crew. Again, this is a shout out for Pat to organizing it. I, of course, saw the show as a professional person working in film and what it meant to me in my 20s and early 30s. But the kids have a different experience because, of course, they were in their early teens and mid-teens. And so I, I had a different role for them in their lives. And it's been incredible to stay connected socially, which we have the whole time with all of these kids, because as I'm sure I don't have to tell you, the power of witness in one's life, someone who saw a conversation, who was witness to a particular kind of professional or personal relationship, you know, it's, it's powerful over the years when you can surround yourself with people who will witness to whatever you are going through, good, fabulous, and bad. So for us to get together, which we do at least once a year at PATS and share our lives now as adults and many of the kids have kids of their own, it's so rich that we knew each other back in the day or back when this or back when that. Witness is very, very important and the ongoing relationships we have with the cast and crew just fortify. That's so beautiful. I know I, I saw the pictures recently because they opened Kid Hood Lane. So I saw you guys there in the classic Arlene made the cake with the Degrassi Amazing. street sign. And I, I look at those. For anyone who hasn't checked Arlene's cakes, check oh. out her Instagram page. Check them. She And her pies. Oh, and she made yeah. Degrassi street sign cookies for Degrassi Palooza. Oh my God. I They were delicious. But I know that when I see those pictures, I feel so lucky that with Degrassi Palooza, we got in on that. Like we got to hang out with you guys as you do your little annual lead up. And I'm so thankful for it. And a lot of the stuff that I have came from Pat. Like, for example, I think with the the big sign I have of you, that was part of like a charity auction that they held at the end where they auctioned them all off. And I was like, I'm going to get Judy Shiner. So it's very cool that a lot of these things are, I mean, I got, he gave me a, um, when they tore down the gym, he got me a brick from from the right. school. That was a little present. So How could they oh, tear down that gym. I know. And now it's just <laughs> the building is so small, but it's still there. It's so sad that it's so small. But a lot of this collection is owed to, you know, Pat Mastriani and doing all these things for the fans. So That's I'm very, very excited for it. Well, Judy, those are all the questions I have for you. Thank you for letting me spend an hour and a half picking your brain. These are all the questions I've always dreamed about asking you. And I'm just so grateful that you're open to doing these kind of fan podcasts. Thank you. Keep in touch. Keep the fandom up. Uh, Don't ever let these stories die. And I hope that you and all your fan base knows that the, the relationship between creators and fans is integral in any art form. And it's so powerful and so meaningful. And there's it's very, very important. And everyone feels it, the actors, the creators, they feel the power of this connection. So thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to speak to you, Jocelyn. And happy, when is your actual 30th birthday? November 15th. About coming weeks. up, girl. It's coming coming up. up. And I'm going yeah. to Toronto and I'm going to, go to Linda's house and it's going to be so much fun. It's going to be amazing. And I'm going to see these locations that we talked about all throughout this episode. And now I get to say, well, Judy Shiner said, Judy Shiner said, I get to tell everybody all these fun stories. So. This sounds means a lot amazing. To me. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Judy. This was awesome. Thanks, Jocelyn. Have a Happy thank birthday. You. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much to Judy Shiner for stopping by the Degrassi Kid Podcast. I'm so thankful that I got to pick her brain on all things Degrassi. And a big thank you to you, our Degrassi Kid Patreon subscribers. If you want to ask questions there are Degrassi actors and Degrassi creatives, this is the way to do it. Click the link in the description and subscribe today. That thank you goes out to Amber, Nicholas, Amy, Amarie, Alana, Annie Clark, AR, Becca, Brittany, Brooklyn, Charlie, Chantel, Chrissy, Digi, Daniela, Dave, Degrassi CSI, Evie, Emily, Ethan, Eugene, Gina, Hannah, Isabel, Jasper, Jackie, Jay, 
Jocelyn, Jess, Joe, Josie, Vince, Jolene, Kat, Catherine, Kristen, Crystal, Kylea, Lizzie Games, Lily, Max, Mark, Mackenzie, Mike, Megan, Nina, Molly, Owen, Rachel, Randy, Rebecca, Racine, Sierra, Sarah J, Shannon, Stephanie, Shelby, Sunita, and my best friend, Stevie Jarawa. Thank you guys for everything that you do. Bye.